Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College. Its annual Summer Institute for Educators takes place June 25th through 27th. Registration is now open at landmark.edu slash LCSI. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, MindShift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome to MindShift, the podcast about the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Ki Sung. And I'm Nima Gobier. Educators have had a really hard time teaching through the pandemic, and yet some have been told a better attitude could make it easier. But telling them to look on the bright side doesn't have the effect you might think. Instead, it can discourage, stress out, and piss people off. When things are really bad, it's important to be realistic. Today, we're confronting systems that want teachers to bury their emotions with toxic positivity. We'll show you a few ways to address this problem in schools. We've got approaches that don't gloss over how hard the pandemic has been. But first, a primer on toxic positivity. And for that, we bring you a story from Irene. My name is Irene. I'm a English teacher in New York City. Irene's school, like so many schools, spent most of 2020 fully remote. Last winter, they transitioned into hybrid learning with some kids in the classroom and some at home. To prepare, teachers and administrators gathered together in person for a staff meeting. When Irene arrived at the meeting, tables were set up six feet apart and the whole room was decked out. Bulletin boards were decorated with like positive phrases and, you know, steps for breathing exercises. The meeting started with community building activities, making Bitmoji avatars and breaking into small groups to talk about their summers. I was so depleted at that point, I didn't want to talk about my summer. She had had a difficult year with remote learning. She was anxious about what was to come and gathering in person for the first time at school was scary. As a parent, she was worried about catching the virus and possibly being quarantined from her child. But then something really threw her for a loop. They watched a TED Talk. People who experienced a lot of stress in the previous year had a 43% increased risk of dying. But that was only true for the people who also believed that stress is harmful for your health. The video is called How to Make Stress Your Friend by Kelly McGonigal. She says changing your attitude towards stress can make you healthier. And participants who learned to view the stress response as helpful for their performance, well, they were less stressed out, less anxious, more confident. But the most fascinating finding to me was how their physical stress response changed. Now, in a typical stress response, your heart rate goes up and your blood... And I know that the intention behind showing that was to say, you know, yes, this is a difficult time, but there are things that we can do to 
make it easier that we can do this with the right mindset. We can do it, you know, and while I appreciate that perspective for me, it felt like I was being told that I felt so terrible because I didn't have the right mindset. It's really hard to reframe your fear of dying when you're in a global pandemic. It's hard to reframe your fear of being separated from your child when that could happen. Some, Irene included, call this toxic positivity. Toxic positivity is focusing on the positive and completely ignoring the negative. It's a good vibes only attitude. It's the belief that you can be positive no matter how intense your situation might be. When people hear the word positive, it sounds good, but it's not. It's not. Saying things are totally fine when they're not is unrealistic. And research shows that being in denial like that leads to more stress. This pandemic has pushed teachers beyond their boundaries. They need real support and structural changes. And being told the solution is an attitude change made folks like Irene feel guilty, stressed, and overwhelmed. I am 37 years old. I am a white woman. I have been teaching for 11 years, so I have a lot of resources, right? I know how to do the job. (laughs) And I was feeling that way. So you can bet that teachers without as much sway at their school, newer teachers and teachers of color, also feel demoralized. Most people are coping with fears and exhaustion. Being told to sweep those aside can lead to faster burnout. I ended up pulling out of a lot of professional responsibilities that I had because I just felt like I couldn't manage all of the things and also take care of myself and also be a good leader. The pandemic is not the first time we've seen toxic positivity. Teachers have been tired of being told they just need to reframe their attitudes with limited money and time. Meanwhile, districts will fail to provide working protections pile on more responsibilities, and spend less on education. Toxic positivity just seems to be more pronounced whenever there's a crisis. Looking at other times we've seen a lot of toxic positivity can help us see where we might be headed and give us lessons on how we could do better. Good evening. I'm speaking to you from the city of New Orleans. Nearly empty, still partly underwater, and waiting for life and hope to return. New Orleans is familiar with crisis. Millions of lives were changed in a day by a cruel and wasteful storm. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit, and for years, the city and its people worked hard on recovery. Arlene Elizabeth Casimir was part of this process. Going into the neighborhoods and speaking with people post-Hurricane Katrina was really powerful because some of the stories I heard was, you know, here's my baby. And this baby of mine was in my belly, like was in the womb as I was treading through those murky waters to the Superdome. A few years after the hurricane, Arlen began teaching kindergartners. Many of the kids she taught were deeply impacted by the storm, even if they had just been babies in their mother's tummies. It, it just wasn't always like a regular first day of school for a lot of children um, because of what was happening. 
there was such like separation anxiety that was like incredibly intense for some children on those first days. And it made sense. Just like the crisis of the pandemic, it was difficult for Arlene to show up for students as she struggled herself. Teachers were dropping like flies, you know, during that time. And teachers were having nervous breakdowns. And there was not a time to pause and witness what was happening to us. So much toxic positivity for us to hold it together, for us to show up, for us to put a smile on when things are hard. Not allowing us to process, to grieve. That level of toxic positivity was very akin to gaslighting. I wanted to be transparent and authentic in who I was. We've talked about how a problem with toxic positivity is that you're covering up your real emotions with a happy-go-lucky facade. Arlen found one antidote is to be more honest about how you're feeling when you show up in the classroom. And she focused on cultivating her own stability before showing up to hold space for students. There was a great deal of inner work that I had to do. I had to really cultivate my own core values. Her inner work included researching trauma-informed teaching, connecting with other teachers, and thinking about how her values aligned with community needs. She also did a lot of reflecting on her own childhood experiences with education, what to keep and what she wanted to change. Arlen was on to something. Elena Aguilar is a coach and consultant for educators. She says this approach to core values is a good one. What action can I take in that moment that is one that I'm going to feel really good about tonight, in 10 years, when I retire? Elena says another way to combat toxic positivity is by diving into our real emotions, because they can actually be helpful tools. If you ask a teacher, how are you doing today? Or how are you feeling? 85 or 90% of the time, the response I hear is one of three words, tired, stressed, overwhelmed. Those are actually not words that describe emotions. Those are words that describe a whole stew of emotions. And so overwhelmed usually has within that stew, sadness, frustration, emotional fatigue, confusion, fear. You can help them listen to what is that frustration trying to tell you? Emotions can alert you to a moment you need to grow or a boundary being crossed. So when you feel frustrated, it might be your emotions telling you it's time to say no. If I told you over there in that closet, there's a treasure chest in which you will find answers to all of your challenges, you would want to go and look. But if I said that treasure chest is your emotions, people would feel like, wait, emotions? I've been taught I need to learn how to manage those and control them or regulate them or that there's more important things for us to focus on. But the way I think about emotions is that they are our greatest untapped resource for wisdom, insight, joy, understanding and connection and energy as educators, as parents. But we need guidance and support on, okay, so how do I go and look in that treasure chest? 
She says the irony is that teachers deal with strong emotions from students all the time, but they're not invited to understand their own. Elena adds that tuning into your emotions may help you discover boundaries, and it's very likely you'll also discover a need for healing. The parts of me that need healing, that deserve healing, the part of me that feels so disrespected as a teacher, that feels like no matter what I do, nobody sees how hard I work, and here I am all day, 120 kids, giving them everything. That's a a sore, achy wounded part of us then that needs healing and deserves healing. And so teacher can learn strategies for in that moment, how can I respond to what's happening immediately? And how can I turn and attend to myself? If the emotion a person is feeling is too much, depression, for example, Elena recommends seeking professional support. In cases like this, your emotions are telling you that you need help. She stresses emotions are helpful tools that shouldn't be ignored. This is not how most of us operate. We've been trained to work through our pain. So how can schools change the culture so that teachers can make room for their emotions? For one, Elena says it's very helpful to have support from school leaders. She's been focusing on ways principals can shift culture to support their teachers in feeling their feelings. I mean, it's simple things. It is when the principal is walking down the hallway in the morning and sees a teacher, it's making eye contact with them and saying, good morning. It's good to see you today. What are you looking forward to today? And so it's how do we listen? How do we connect with people? How do we not just say as a sort of perfunctory, how are you doing? But how do we actually sit down with someone and say, you know, I know you had a rough week last week. I could see it on your face. What's been coming up for you? I want to listen. Shifting the culture to make room for more emotions might be a little uncomfortable at first. Most culture shifts are. Teachers might feel on edge about answering this question. They might say everything is fine because they don't want to be seen as not doing their job well. True, and it'll probably take time to build trust. Elena says leaders can help by acknowledging that. Saying, you know, I know this is awkward. I've never asked you about your feelings before, but I've been doing some learning and I really am curious. I really want to understand your experience more. It'll help me be a better principal. Would you be willing to share? And the thing is, so many people are willing to talk about how they're really doing. They're just not given a space. We've talked about culture changes, but as you've said, one of the failings of toxic positivity is that it gets in the way of needed structural changes. What are structural changes that would be helpful? Support that actually impacts teachers' working conditions and long-term wellness. Instead of putting pastries in the teacher's lounge with a nice banner, school leaders can push for structural change where possible. It might look like more time to lesson plan, time off, and mental health support. Those are just a few ideas, but Elena suggests talking to teachers you work with about what they need. So this is how we can start to shift the culture and structure for teachers. When we get back, we'll look at how toxic positivity shows up for students and how to steer classrooms clear of it.
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Many of us can't help but perpetuate the cultures we're a part of. So teachers who are slammed with toxic positivity may pass it on to their students. Kindergarten teacher Arlen Elizabeth Casimir actually saw this play out in New Orleans. The way that teachers were being treated, that's how they were treating kids. The way they were being told to be gracious with the kids, to understand like what they're going through, it's like that wasn't being offered to them. So they subconsciously perpetuated that. And so the humanity of students was often compromised. In the book, We Want to Do More Than Survive, Dr. Bettina Love also sees teachers reinforcing elements of toxic positivity in class in the form of character education. When it's done poorly, character education prioritizes being nice, productive, and kind over all other feelings. Sometimes it even sends the message to children that if they're good and have a pleasant attitude, everything will be all right. While being nice and hardworking isn't a bad thing, When it's the main focus, it can limit their ability to process the world around them and be active citizens. Dr. Love also sees character education being used as a tool for student compliance. In the classroom, this looks like points and penalties for behavior, or activities like writing your bad feelings down and putting them in a bag at the door so class can continue without the bad feelings. Teachers like Arlen have learned that character education is not the solution when we're in a time of crisis, and students are in need of support and healing. To course correct, Arlen wanted to put her students at the heart of everything she did in the classroom, in an approach called student-centered learning. I would think to myself, what kind of questions do I want to ask students so that they could co-create the narrative of my classroom? Like, how could I make this a healing-centered space? And so I sat with each of my students and I said to them, this year, I'm thinking that we could think about using our voice to change the world. And so what are some things that you would want to change about the world? She asked her kids this every year. Visually and as a group. Here are two of her students mulling it over. It shows me that we can all work together as one voice to save our world and change stuff within it that we think needs change. And it makes me think about us being able to change the world with our voice when we get older or probably right now. Based on the answers she gets from her students throughout the year, she finds books, lesson plans, and even celebrations to carry out their vision. Arlen wants her students to know their thoughts and feelings are important. 
implementing that choice and voice is really powerful for kids as we return and then being open and willing to revise that as the world continues to shift and change and not doing all of this groundwork in September and then saying like we're set for the year, but really allowing it to be an ever evolving process um, and really being willing to make adjustments when they tell you like, no, like that wasn't successful today. Student-centered learning is a great start, but Dr. Bettina Love proposes taking it a step further to politicize students. When Dr. Love says politicize, politicize means understanding context, teaching kids how social structures make life hard for some and easy for others, showing them how experiences are different across, say, race, class, and gender. And the next step after you're politicized is doing something about it. Dr. Love suggests civic education. This is especially important for Black and Brown students. Here are clips of Dr. Love in an interview with staff at Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction, talking about why being politicized matters. When you are politicized, it gives you language to understand what's happening to you. And when you're politicized, what's happening to you, you don't blame yourself. And then also, you don't have the self-hatred, the self-loathing. You can look at yourself and see the beauty of yourself. Mm-hmm. But in the same breath, you also can put the blame on institutions and not people. And so when you are politicized, it gives you these ideas of dignity, of freedom, mm-hmm. of love and compassion and understanding. It doesn't take away all the issues. And for me, it's always about kids not blaming themselves and not blaming their communities and not blaming people that look like them for injustice and understanding squarely where that blame should be. This is all part of abolitionist teaching, a term coined by Dr. Bettina Love. Abolitionist teaching is just as much about dismantling systems and resisting them as it is about creating new systems, in part through civic education. Civic education gives young learners the skills and opportunities to figure out what's important, then advocate or make the changes they want to see. It may look like participating in protests, organizing food drives, creating petitions, starting letter-writing campaigns, or calling local officials. One place this is being put into practice is at Woke Kindergarten, based out of New York and run by Key Gross. I just thought, we're doing all these wonderful things. How do I share this? you know, with people beyond the four walls of our classroom. Key started Woke Kindergarten five years ago. It's based on abolitionist practices that they first developed as a teacher in Harlem. Now Woke Kindergarten is a resource, a place where teachers can get curriculum advice and consulting help. Part of abolition is really about thriving, not about just survival anymore. Existing in survivalist mode really gets you thinking about the trauma, but when you're thinking about thriving, you're thinking about the healing, which means I need to make sure that I'm centering the humanity of black and brown children at all times, of queer and trans folks at all times, because our stories are not just stories of death and hurt and pain. In actuality, our stories are that of brilliance and joy Here's some audio from a woke kindergarten video that parents and caregivers can listen to with their little ones. This one is called Black Joy. Black Joy, 
Would you rather run through the grass or make a big splash? Would you rather look at the sky or jump really high? Black joy, black joy, black joy. For Key, joy and healing are paired with telling the truth and having critical conversations about the unfairness of the world. What's important here is that we don't stay in that sadness. We make space for that sadness to exist, right? We, we, we stay in it as much as we need to, but with children, we don't sit here and stay in it and then that's it. For example, Key tells a story about how their kindergarten students were upset about the results of the 2016 election. With policies about immigration, health care, and other civil rights issues hanging in the balance, Key's classroom of black and brown kids were scared of what could happen to them. When Key asked them how they were feeling and what action they would like to take, students decided to have a protest because they had been reading stories about Audrey Fay, the civil rights movement's youngest marcher. They took to the halls of their school to demonstrate their right to resist. This is just one way that Key has seen the dream of abolitionist teaching taking shape. Now, how do we move towards being able to galvanize kids into action to help kids understand that they aren't victims of of circumstance only in this way, that they are actually creators of their own futures? How can we go to the kids and get them to kind of freedom dream beyond the confines of their current realities to be able to create their own futures? That's also really healing. So not only are kids having honest discussions and advocating for change, they're taking active roles in creating a new, more just world. I want kids to see themselves as full people, you know, because white supremacy consistently strips us of that. Patriarchy consistently strips us of that. And so we need to make sure that kids are able to not only know the truth about these systems and structures and ideologies, but also know that they can and will actively resist them. Practicing civic engagement is just as important for teachers as it is for students. To combat toxic positivity, educators can be honest with themselves about having to do so much with so little. And when possible, they can take action to improve their situation, like electing officials who will fund and support teachers, or organize against policies that hurt them. The problems we're grappling with now are problems people have had before. There are many conversations on how to fix it. But before we go, Arlen has a final reminder. Be patient, because healing from a crisis like this pandemic could take a while. There's going to be a lot of people who are like, oh, it's over now, like we're getting back to normal. But what we've learned from Hurricane Katrina is that we were still feeling the effects, you know, 10, 12 years later. Thanks to Irene Yanascoli, Arlen Casimir, Elena Aguilar, and Key Gross for talking to me for this story. Mindshift is produced by me, Nima Gobier. And me, Key Sung. Our editor is Jessica Placek. Seth Samuel is our sound designer. Erica Aguilar is our head of podcasts, and Holly Kernan is KQED's chief content officer. If you love MindShift, tell your friends about our podcast. It helps people find the show, and it helps us keep going. 
I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid. And I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.